She's your auntie's friend here for her 17th Christmas, Brandy Joy. And there are two in the pink, one in the ink, Danette Smith. And you're listening to Verses, where poets confront the ideas that mahoove them. Brought to you by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Hiya, Franny. Hey, Denise. How's it going? Lovely. Yeah? Mm-hmm. How's your heart these days? My heart is, like, good. You know, I'm, like, stuck on, like, the border of I'm happy being single, and mm-hmm. if I don't have a man right now, I'm going to kill somebody. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, that classic sort of pendulum. Yeah, yeah. Very confusing territory. Uh-huh, <laughs> How yeah. are you feeling? I feel good. How I mean, is your heart? My heart. I get personal. <laughs> <laughs> my heart is good, you know. Mm-hmm. Part of my heart is far away. I'm just kind of counting down the months till I can be... You know, Beautiful reunited with my, yeah. with my boo. Yeah, continue to live your little rom-com life. Yeah, yeah. you know, trying, mm-hmm. trying, doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in your rom-com life, right? Like, let's imagine mm-hmm. that we live in a world where Hollywood isn't bullshit. Okay. And there are actually, like, queer and, like, people of color, like, rom-coms. Ooh, my gay Asian-American rom-com you're gay, life. You're gay, interracial, Asian-American, queer, queer poly, trans, whatever. Yeah, yeah tra- <laughs> like, all the LGBTQ2. <laughs> I-Z-Z-Z-Z one, two, three rom-com <laughs> that so rude. I don't know I feel like the only people that get to make fun of the acronym are actual faggots yeah so that's true okay. but anyways um, what is like the one rom-com like corny trope thing that you actually want to happen in your life oh man I mean I love a good kind of like meet cute story mm-hmm. if for those who don't know what a meet cute is mm-hmm. I don't exactly either, but I, I think it's okay. Yeah. Meet cute is the point in a rom com where the two like protagonists like uh-huh. meet each other and it's like in a cute situation. Right, so, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So it's just you know reaching for the same book at the bookstore. Right. In the rain, like he gave me his code. Blah, right, blah, yeah. right. Yeah, and I think that I didn't with my love. I didn't. Ex- there wasn't exactly like a meet cute. It was like we were friends for five years or whatever you know (laughs) so that would be nice Mm -hmm. i also this is less rom-com and more like a prescription drug commercial okay riding horses with the person okay don't you think that'd be kind of cute so you want to be in like a tampon commercial with your lover yeah okay cool (laughs) why not yeah on a heavy day i reach for you (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh no leaks your love gives me wings (laughs) (laughs) perfect oh my gosh you are so good it's it's as if i don't use tampons and you do i I think about them a lot Anyway, so like, yeah, yeah, horses, uh-huh. which are, I think, consistently underrated. Word, word. <laughs> Dinez Smith? Um, let's see. I think I would like a, like, very dramatic meeting with an ex um, in, like, oh. another country. In, like, a, an ex and then it's like, we're back together? I don't know. I think I just have a very hard time, like, leaving all my old relationships. And so, like, in my mind, all my exes are still potential partners. Uh-huh. Um, my favorite kind of rom-com is the, like... Last time this didn't work, but this time we're both different and like maybe we can like do something, you know. I imagine myself like wearing like a very nice all white outfit mm-hmm. and like ordering a coffee in bad French. And then I turn and it's just like, <gasps> Jacques! <laughs> Never dated a nigga named Jacques, but you know, in this, yeah, 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 in, yeah. In this version yeah, yeah, yeah. of the story. Yeah, just like at the next table or is he the waiter? Um, dun, dun, dun. No, he's oh, no. with another man okay. who I assume is his partner. And then I learned that it's actually his brother. Ooh. And then 
I sleep with both of them. And then that that's how the movie fucks up. Yeah, just classic rom-com stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? My Brother's Keeper coming out from Universal Studios. Oh, my Sometime God. soon. <laughs> Sometime soon. Speak it into existence, girl. <laughs> well, speaking of romance. <laughs> romance? Romance. Romance. That's just romance without condoms. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> About that romance. <laughs> speaking of romance. Uh. Um. We are really excited to talk today to our love, Kimon <laughs> Felix, yes. who, among other things, is a poet and an incredible performer, a political strategist and communications director, and an all-around bad bitch, and someone who lately has been exploring writing about romance mm-hmm. and heartbreak in her work. Mm-hmm. And we're really excited to get to talk to her about that project and some other things. And also her too. new collection, Build yes. Yourself a Boat, yes. that should be in the Treats about now. A right about now. Mm-hmm. Purchase it today. And because you're going to go get it, we're going to treat you to this here poem by Kamon before we get into the interview. Let's go. Let's do it. Statement on being lonely versus alone. On background. I think carefully about assumptions on my walk home. I hold the map of the moon at the base of my neck, balancing on orbs and light and pride and shit. Heartbreak is an oily firewall, a permutation. I fall victim to my need to be small, even when I pull the sun, the hierophant, the ace of cups. Even with this vice of wealth in practice, grace in sheer ability, I tell my girls it's all good because I cross with the two of cups every time. I fill up. I am at capacity. I sit contradicted in my lonesomeness and how much I rely on consolation as validation. I know better than to vote against myself, cancel myself out in negatives, be kind to my friend, Kayla says, and boy, am I trying. This new port, a foxtail with its hand in its mouth. I shell out to breathe better. I shell out to breathe better. I shrink to belong. Oof. Yes. Kamal Felix is the author of Build Yourself a Boat and is the future of American politics. Yes, Kamal, thank it's you. For, true. <laughs> it's true. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Cool. Oh, man. So I think that by the time this podcast airs, your book will either be in the world or like about to be in the world. Yeah. And so we're recording it in February. How are you feeling at this point about the being oh in the God. world? It's so weird. I thought that when I got it in my hand, I would Mm -hmm. cry. Mm -hmm. I haven't hit that point yet. Like, it hasn't happened. And maybe this is just because of the way my brain works. I'm still very much in construction mode Mm -hmm. where I'm like, I got it. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. Now let's make sure everything's right. (laughs) Right, 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 So, like, these margins don't work. I see and edit. So I'm still not at the place, I think, where I just get to, like, sit and be grateful for it. And I'm super eager for that point because it's been a lot of brains into this and a lot of minds and a lot of time. I've been writing this book for five years. I would like to get to a point where I'm just like, yes, it's done. This is it. I can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. I think I'll feel a lot better then. <laughs> Do you feel like a cry is on the horizon? It might be. I hope. I really hope so. This this should beat the shit out of me for five years. So like, bitch, if I don't get to cry, we're gonna have a fucking problem. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? I love the idea of demanding a cry from your I, like. I I bet I you owe me this fucking cry. <laughs> Fuck that. It shit. is deserved. It is. Totally, totally. Fuck out of here. I've been fucking editing and fucking dying and shit. This book had one publisher, didn't got another oh. publisher. Oh. Then, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Who were you when you started writing this book and how has that changed? So I started writing this book in my MFA program at Bard, Mm -hmm. which when I was there, I was the youngest person in my entire program and maybe the youngest person ever admitted and definitely the only black person. In your cohort or in the whole program? So just a little young Negro. Just a young Negro (laughs) bitch (laughs) in this school with all these white artists and my MFA program. um, What's that show with the Gary Coleman? Different strokes. Different strokes okay, with the cool. Gary Cole. <laughs> with the Gary. Yeah. <laughs> the Gary. Um, when I started writing this collection, I think a big part of me, and you can see some of some of it in there, I was just really experimenting and trying to figure out how to play around mm. and how to really integrate form in a way that felt authentic and not like I was just clout chasing. Mm. Um I still just like didn't really know what kind of writer I was. Yeah. Funny enough, I still have no idea, <laughs> um, which is great. So I think now I'm a little bit more confident in terms of understanding how I experiment and mm. what that looks like. Mm. But I think I'm more jaded and like less excited mm. about craft than I was when huh. I first started writing this. What do you mean by that? It's funny because I think, you know, five years in, one chapbook down, you know, another master's program, mm-hmm. tours, traveling. When you first enter this craft and the idea of a book is even on the horizon or even like a project, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just a project. It feels so promising and it's so big because you just don't know mm-hmm. what could possibly come of it. Mm-hmm. And now like five years later and I've sort of been through the administrative process of like how you write a book and Mm -hmm. how you get it signed. It feels so much less about exploration Mm -hmm. and just like the love of the craft and it feels so much more administrative. Mm. I hear that. And that's weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I I guess I'm I'm just much more of like a technical writer now Mm -hmm. than I was when I first started this. Like Mm -hmm. now I'm a career writer, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like when I started this book, I was like a poet who like hoped one day somebody would buy this shit. Mm -hmm. But like now... Now I got books yeah. right, and right, I have right. to like write them. I feel that. Right. I think that's the thing I've been struggling with for the last couple of months too is like for a while I think I was trying to recapture the feeling that I had when I first started writing when it was like bright and new and alive and mm-hmm. mysterious. And I'm at this point where I'm just like, oh, I, I know how to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is no longer a thing I'm trying to figure out but a thing I do, mm-hmm. which are two different yeah. feelings. Yeah. And, and one I, is sort of like decidedly shinier than the yes. other. One is definitely yeah. shinier. But I'm wondering, like, even amongst the jadedness, mm-hmm. in your work or in the work of others, what is still making you believe in poetry mm. or like want to keep going on this yeah. route? Um, regardless of like, you know, how professional we have to become, mm-hmm. poetry is still just such a unique, strange craft. It mm-hmm. is so otherworldly. There is nothing like writing a poem. Mm-hmm. And so like obviously, especially as like being having been a deputy press secretary and a speechwriter and like all of these other things, I write all day long. But nothing feels like writing a poem. Mm-hmm. Just like nothing. Nothing feels as like strange and it's so unique. Mm. The f- <laughs> it's funny, right? Like, no matter how many poems you've written, like, I think back to the fact that I've probably been writing poems now for 11 years, mm-hmm. and still to this day, you write a poem and you're like, how the fuck did I do that? Yo, <laughs> right, it's right, like good right. sex with yourself. It is. It's exactly. Like, right, right, right. Every time you're like, <laughs> but I fucking, what? I didn't know that spot existed. <laughs> right, yeah. like, oh my God, I just came, that's why, like, your body does that. That's crazy. <laughs> Whoa. That is legit. I feel every time I write a fucking poem. Shout like, out to poemgasm. Right? Yeah. Poemgasm, that's exactly oh. what it is it's just a poem gasm and then you know then the come down happens where you're like this shit is trash <laughs> like, 
fuck. This poem is whack. It's true. But I wrote one. Yeah. So I think that is always going to live with me. Mm-hmm. There's just nothing like this craft. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing is like crafting a poem. This shit's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I assume that you spend like many more hours of your day writing in these other forms. Mm-hmm. Is that that work feeds your poetry? Yeah. Work or, yeah. yeah. How, how do I those think interact? They feed each other a lot more now, mm-hmm. though I am starting to feel like one is becoming an inhibitor to the other mm-hmm. sometimes, which, you know, could also just be in my head. But they feed each other, right? Fundamentally, like, being able to condense a moment, right? Especially mm-hmm. a political moment yeah. into a statement or into a press release or into an op-ed, mm-hmm. right? Allows your brain to synthesize an idea or an issue in a way that then allows like imagery and framing to do something different. Mm -hmm. You know, like the idea of talking about fascism in this like very general way, when you write a statement, you can't just talk about fascism, Mm -hmm. right? You have Mm -hmm. to like get specific in some way. And then I think the way that feeds into a poem is then that specificity then like grows legs and Mm -hmm. grows new colors and new limbs. And then that's when you find an image that you would never have thought of before or some strange sensation that you then get to codify. Mm -hmm. In what ways do you feel like it's inhibiting? Because you mentioned that as well. Yeah, so it's inhibiting in that like... And maybe this is just, you know, something I need to work out with, like, a therapist or something. But I feel like five years ago, my language had more color. In poetry? In poetry, Mm -hmm. yeah. It had, like, more color and just, like, more imagination. Mm -hmm. And it was a bigger world. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, writing in this very technical way gives me a very specific kind of range Hmm. of language, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, there are just certain words that I'm more inclined to use than I used to be. So, Mm -hmm. like, more inclined to use something like perpetual versus a word like flower, Mm -hmm. which, like, seem drastically different because they are. Um, Sometimes I get frustrated because I'm looking for the word flower and I end up with Mm. phalanges or something like that. And you're like, I don't know how I got here, but I guess. Um, (laughs) Okay, that technical language just like really seeps into the work. And and what I have been trying to do is just sort of like own that and allow mm. the technical language to provide a new kind of poetic landscape for myself that I then get to like blow up and tease a little bit. Mm. But I still am like very hungry for that other language that mm. just comes from poetry yeah. mm. that you can bring into politics, but is not natural to it. Like mm. the poetic the language of beauty, the language of beauty is just yeah. not natural to politics. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I do so well in politics is because I already have that natural understanding of beauty and like how to bring beauty to something grotesque Mm -hmm. but that isn't translating back into poems the way that it used to. Hmm. Politics is getting all of my poetics Mm -hmm. and my poetics is getting all of this technical writing Mm -hmm. and I can't find the balance. Mm -hmm. So that's been really frustrating. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. To think about like who benefits more from that exchange. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But I think you know also I don't know I wanted to like put out like this hope that you'll have find that language again. You know what yeah, I mean? And like that's because the prayer. You yeah. don't, we don't lose you any lose of the ways it. that we learn to write. Yeah. We just like add more things. Right. And the thing is still underneath that. And maybe yeah. you could write about that. Like I don't know. Like I'm still in my mind thinking about the sentence you said I went looking for flowers and found phalange. I'm like why isn't that Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's actually really good. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. And the other thing, that's the other part of it too, right? Is like we're so used to talking like poets mm. that like people will often say like oh that was a really poetic sentence here. Like, no, that was just a regular ass sentence. <laughs> but, and, and maybe that's the problem, too, where because, you know, I've been doing this for so long and then I have this, like, very technical 
technical language of contrast that nothing I say feels poetic because everything feels uh, basic. Mm-hmm. And maybe I just need to like return to the basic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird and fascinating maybe, and maybe a struggle because I feel like you kind of have like no reprieve from language mm-hmm. in the different works mm-hmm. that right, you're working, right? right everything right, right, you do right. is so much about right. the sentence and the word. Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. yeah. exactly. Know, I've been thinking about how much we read nowadays mm-hmm. um, and how that might have been different than, let's say, like our parents or right. our parents' generations, yeah. right? Like, right. So much about social media, right? Even right. as a thing, is about you know we have so much more language in our life, mm-hmm. dull language, really good language, right. yeah. but but it's mostly how, like vernacular language. Yeah, yeah. And how does that change the writer's relationship mm-hmm. to language, right? right? Where before maybe we had to go to books or ourselves to find language, where mm-hmm. now or you know advertisements, right, whatever, right, right, sure, right. Language is everywhere, right, right, right. But it literally feels like everywhere now. Right, where like yeah. I. And think about my own life, and I'm just like, oh, I feel like I have so many more words in right. my daily life mm-hmm. than I did. Yeah, and very specific ago. kinds too, right? Mm-hmm. Where like the day goes by, and like I've read 15 articles mm-hmm. because you just fucking have to. Yeah, some shit pops up, and you're like, okay, well, I need to read this, mm-hmm. right. and then you know you're done with reading your 15 articles, and then you've somehow read 100 tweets yeah. that day. You yeah. have no idea how, mm-hmm. but not a poem. But not a poem. Right. <laughs> but not a fucking poem. Yeah. Right. And I've been like trying to force myself. So like no matter where I am, there is a poetry book in my bag. Mm. The book often does not get read, but it's almost like a sort of like fundamental reminder of like the world is bigger than the language that we're being given right now that mm. you're like required to lean into because of your profession or because of the moment. And mm. trying to like force myself to remember that language is bigger than mm. these articles. Mm. But it's so just so good. hard to access. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird economy, right? Where it's just like nobody is requiring that I read poems. No. Mm-hmm. I have to require that. But like my boss, whoever, you know, that is, requires that when I come in that morning, I've read every article yeah. that mm-hmm. mentions them. <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> That's just yeah. real shit. Yeah, you know? Sure. And mm-hmm. it's like 30 articles. Yeah. Right. Right. And then so much of your daily reading so mind has daily, already been taken it's up. It's gone. Right. Yeah. What capacity do you have to like really navigate through metaphor when mm-hmm. you've just read 30 pages of like this person said this and this person said this and here's the socio-political implication. I hope for you that like in the many careers that are to come mm-hmm. that you get to demand that, right? Because it's yeah. just like, you know, you got to like let me read this poetry book right now. Right. Politician person because yes. it's going to help me make better make stuff better for you to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Totally. Yeah, one thing I try to do is like, this would be my last summer at Cave coming up. Ooh. But like, are you going? I'm going. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, that's something that, especially as I get more senior in my roles, is something that I'm like fine with demanding. I teach a workshop um, every spring with Speakeasy. And like, folks know, like, if I teach from seven to nine, like, I'm offline at 6 30. You're not going to find me. Don't call me. Mm-hmm. And those are certain demands that are like harder to make when you're younger and when you like have less agency. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I like require. So oh, wherever I yeah. end up in the next couple of weeks, like they know I will be gone for nine days and don't fucking call me. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. You deserve it. Like, yeah. Poems, <laughs> goddammit. So while we're kind of thinking about like the work versus work, mm-hmm. so I'm reading this gorgeous book of yours. One, it's one of the most gorgeous like objects of literature I Truly. feel like I've ever seen mm-hmm. just as a book. And it was great to read it just to see how well, the poems not only live up to that beauty of the object, but exceed. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, just kudos to you for writing shit out of Build Yourself a Boat. Yes. But I was reading it and I was, I, in, you know, solely because I like know some things about your life, but I was wondering how you feel like your relationship to the personal politic or just like the idea of like to write poetry that like has a body. How has that changed the deeper you go into politics, this mm-hmm. relationship to the politics of living and all that other kind of stuff that mm. appears in the work. 
I want to say that it hasn't changed very much, mm-hmm. mostly because I understand the importance of being able to talk about the body in all of the ways that are accessible to us, mm-hmm. right? Like that being inherently political. Mm-hmm. So it feels antithetical to my personal politics, right? The politics mm-hmm. that say that like our bodies are valuable, our sexual experiences mm-hmm. are valuable, like who and how we love is just as important to our political moment than who the fascists in office is. Mm -hmm. So I feel like actually it's become even more important to me on a basic level. Like talk about sex. Yeah. Talk about the body. Talk about what happens to the body when it's being violated. It feels like an important protest that I think Mm -hmm. the— political world naturally wants to pull artists away from, Mm. right? Because that's the way that commodification works, where it wants to separate you from your body so that your labor becomes wholly physiological and not theoretical and not Mm -hmm. psychological, right? Mm -hmm. Like what they want is for you to forget that your body is a body. They Mm -hmm. want you to just think that it's a tool. Mm -hmm. And the more that you remember and reclaim that your body is not a tool, I think the more profound the idea of what humanity can do is. Mm -hmm. You better preach right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, think about this shit, okay? (laughs) But, you know, especially I think as like— you know, obviously, like Marx is all Marx is all over this. When we no longer call ourselves an I, when mm. we lean wholly into the collective, um, that we just don't have claim to our bodies. Mm. And I reject that. I reject the idea that after a little while, after you become in service, that you are no longer like a person that you just give service. And mm-hmm. that's just not true. Yeah. Mm. When I come. That is me giving something back to my body that has been taken from me, Mm -hmm. right? My poems deserve that too. My poems Mm -hmm. deserve to talk about that, Mm -hmm. about like how coming is a reclamation. And like, you know, (laughs) if I ever run for office and, you know, some Republican is like, oh, she talks about her pussy. It's like, yeah, I'll talk about my pussy right the fuck now. And about how you should not (laughs) even be anywhere fucking near it. How about you like give me these politics back so that I can do what I want with my womb and you can go fuck yourself. Amen. If I can't humanize what the body does, mm-hmm. then how can I actually talk about policy? Mm-hmm. You can say all day, like, women deserve for, you know, men to not touch their wombs and we deserve to have full autonomy over our bodies. How can I actually say that and write that into legislation if I don't truly believe that down to, like, what I eat in the morning mm-hmm. and who mm-hmm. I fuck, right? Mm-hmm. How can I possibly actually believe that? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that work of, like, reclamation and, like, rehumanizing the body, which is like so gorgeous, Mm -hmm. how that shows up on the Mm -hmm. level of craft. Yeah. Specifically in Build Yourself a Boat, there are footnotes. And the footnotes footnotes tell a story. Yeah. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you gotten to the end yet? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm not going to reveal anything. So if you want to explain it to our reader or unless you want them to figure it out, unless you want them to buy it and figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) I do want you to buy it and figure it out. I'll give you a a little bit of a clue. The footnotes sort of like lead to a holistic reclamation that is sort of like intergenerational. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like obviously that made the book a little complicated in that it like added a whole other layer that I couldn't expect people to just get from the beginning. I had to ask readers to be patient and like Mm -hmm. to get to the end with me to actually understand what reclaiming the body looks like. Mm. But I tried to make sure that like the grotesque and the beautiful live in the same space. Mm. So for instance, like writing about rape is always very beautiful. Mm. You will always find you know, pink language, Hmm. and you always find flowers, right, when I talk about rape. And that's not because 
I think rape is beautiful, but because I understand that the body is dynamic and that you can't really prescribe what something feels like. All you can do is like say what you feel. Mm. And I just try to own that as much as I can. There is a poem in here called Google Search Keywords. Yeah, I love, yes, that. I love that series. Yeah. It's literally just me saying like what my brain is thinking and mm-hmm. what my body is doing with no real narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as like blood in underwear, kids having sex. It is just a very bodily experience. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know how you read Google search words Mm -hmm. and how you plug things in Mm -hmm. and really just allowing the body to like do what it does in the real world on the page Mm -hmm. and not try to amplify it in a way that isn't real. Mm -hmm. When you say let the body do what it does in the real world, you mean like. Like yeah, have the just ask, and, have the feelings, ask yeah. the questions that mm-hmm. the way that you would ask them. Take the walk on the page the way that you take the walk in real life. Mm-hmm. So even when you like look at the way that like form shifts and like all of those things, obviously, and this is true for most poets, I think, mm-hmm. but like line breaks are breaths. That like kind of goes without saying. And like music is a dance. Some of it is to the left some of it is to the right and that's because like that is what my brain is doing Mm. right like Mm. that is how my brain is dancing it's like over here then it's over there then it's over Mm. there just trying to let the body do what it does in real life on the page Mm. and allowing the page to sort of illustrate that and so to that end like utilizing white space in a way that I don't necessarily know that we've been taught Mm. but like taking advantage of it yeah, which do is you, funny because that's what I do all the time. Do you feel? Do you feel like? <laughs> Sorry, just got <laughs> that was clever. Wow. <laughs> do you feel like that impulse of like letting the poem do what it does, like a really organic way, or like privileging the organic mm-hmm. kind of like process of the poem? Yeah. Do you feel like that is at odds with like the you you know you talked about like approaching the poems really technically these yeah. days? Is that definitely like a pull? at odds? And that's mm-hmm. part of why where I am in my craft right now is like so uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. because my natural instinct is just to approach the page and just like put shit on there right mm-hmm. and like let it do what it does yeah. but then it comes out and it's like really technical and like mm-hmm. trisyllabic and I'm like that's not what my brain is doing yeah, yeah. right like yeah. I don't know why I just said paramount when I wanted to say these two things are the same and then it makes me think about maybe my brain is just changing mm-hmm. I don't know and that's also freaky I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah they Mom, definitely what are all these changes in my body I don't understand is this puberty Um, But yeah, they definitely live in opposition. Mm -hmm. And that's been weird. But I also think that maybe there's an interesting tension on the page for it, too. Totally. So like now I just write about sex because like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's the most real thing happening to me and you know what I mean like it's like all day and sex is the space for tension so exactly mm-hmm. sex is the space the for tension. Of tension yes and the relief of tension mm-hmm. as a strategist everything that I do it like there is a point and there's an end game and for sex like there really isn't the end game is to come mm-hmm. maybe 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 you don't want to come mm-hmm. yeah. that's yeah. a thing mm-hmm. yeah. maybe the goal is to like come 10 times and pass out who mm-hmm. knows <laughs> 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 Whew, okay <laughs> is this going to be our, our like next sexual, Crescendo. very sexual podcast? <laughs> it's like you and Natalie, Natalie Diaz. Diaz. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Not a bad room. <laughs> I think that answers your question. It does. I think so it too. Does. Can I jump back a little bit to yeah. something? Um, because a little while ago you invited uh, Marks in the room and he's just been sitting over there patiently. Yeah. Hey, hey Carl. Hey, hey Carl. Carl. What's good? Hey, Carlito. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mr. Marks. Yeah. Mr. Marky Marks. Mr. Marks. Uh, Marky Marks. And the commie bunch. Yes. Um, I wanted to know at this point in your life, right? You're like uh, like 20 something. I don't know how long you want to lie into your 30s. <laughs> um, but you're 20 something. <laughs> 
we can't have historical documents right, of like okay. proper uh, ages. Yeah, no, um, we don't do that. So you're 20 something forever. Uh-huh, forever. Um, and you know, you you have this book coming out, you have this like wonderful resume of like all this like boss shit you've done. Mm-hmm. How do you see your relationship to the idea of work at this point in your life? And how do you see the idea of like work shifting around you, maybe in your generation and mm-hmm. folks that you find it? Work for me right now um is very much about understanding my privilege, understanding what I'm sort of like predisposed to do mm-hmm. and being in service that way mm-hmm. to make it a little bit more clear. So like most people, especially the people that like we know we are friends with, would not choose the jobs that I have chosen, right? Or <laughs> yeah. are like deeply uninvested in politics, at least in the way that I am or have to be. Mm-hmm. I, too, sometimes am like, I could just write poems, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the reality is I could Mm -hmm. just get a PhD, right? I already have an MFA. That's terminal. I could just teach and write books. But I grew up in a family that was highly political. Mm -hmm. My father is a socialist. He helped liberate the Grenadian government from the U.S. in 1983, right? Like, my grandma was a Black Panther and also, like, president of the NAACP chapter in the neighborhood that I grew up in. When I was in high school, before I started writing poetry, I was a policy debater, Mm -hmm. which funny enough, like not a lot of people know what policy debate is or the format, but it is very intense. Mm -hmm. And it's a bunch of young kids straight up being lawyers, period, and like writing legislation. In my head now, right, like knowing that because I'm a poet, there's a certain way that I get to see the world. There's a certain beauty and framework that I get to see the world that like regular everyday politicos don't see Mm -hmm. because I am a poet who has this background Mm -hmm. that most of my friends don't have. I'm almost obligated to an extent to do this work. Wow. The kids that I grew up with on my block, and I say this all the time, just because the kids in this classroom don't know what the word institutional racism means Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they don't see it every day and that they don't know that it's happening and that Mm -hmm. they don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Just because you don't speak their language and aren't experts in it. Mm -hmm. Just because you don't speak their language doesn't mean that they don't know what the fuck they're talking Mm -hmm. about. But what I also realized too is that there is a very unique privilege of being able to walk in between those worlds, of being multilingual in that way, Mm -hmm. of being able to like talk to the everyday political folks who like don't know what the fuck we mean when we say hustling or struggling, Mm -hmm. right? And then being able to go back to my folks and talk to them about politics in this very, like, transparent, honest, down-to-earth way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know very many people who live at that intersection, Mm -hmm. so I feel obligated to do the work that lives at that intersection. Mm -hmm. As much as I could just go write books, Mm -hmm. right, and kick it, more than enough of my peers are doing that. Mm -hmm. But there's a different part of the world that requires the kind of investment that poetics allows us to give and just a place in the world where I understand the language, I understand how to navigate it, Mm -hmm. and I just feel obligated to do that. What does that obligation feel like? It's really awkward (laughs) (laughs) and, like, kind of strangely uncomfortable because it means that I'm required to walk into spaces with and be both of those things in spaces where they don't always fit. Mm. So, like, when I first started working for Governor Cuomo, I still had, like, my septum piercing and, like, my short box braids. And, like, you know, I was, like, teaching at Harlem Children's Zone still, Mm -hmm. right? 
And it means that I don't get to divorce one from the other when I walk into those rooms. Like, mm-hmm. I just have to be that and mm-hmm. deal with the awkwardness that comes with it mm-hmm. and deal with, like, the discomfort and also deal with sort of, like, having a different moral and ethical framework than other people, mm-hmm. yeah. knowing that there are certain shit that other people might be able to let slide or deal with. But because of who I am and where I come from and who I am accountable to, I can't let that shit slide. Mm-hmm. That's difficult, right? Mm-hmm. You know, having to be the one who— if there's another black death where I can't let the day go by and be like, okay, we'll do a statement tomorrow. Like, no, it has to happen right now. Mm -hmm. So that means I have to fight through six white people who are more senior than me to like make sure that this thing happens. Mm -hmm. Right. And then also know like we can't put out a statement unless we do something. So now I have to fight through like eight legislators in the administration or whatever to make sure that like something gets done so that we can say something. Mm -hmm. And that's a fight that like someone else, even another black person in the office doesn't have to go through because they have a different kind of accountability, Mm. but I just do, which means I make different kinds of enemies Mm. and different kinds of friends. The world can be really bleak from day to day. I don't get to enjoy it the same way that other people get to enjoy it. I don't get to enjoy the prestige. I don't get to enjoy the sort of like high level nature of whatever. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, the people I have to be accountable to don't give a fuck (laughs) about this shit. Mm. What they care about is that your ethics and what you do on a daily basis represent who we are. Mm. And sometimes I have to remind people, like, we're not accountable to the same people. So, yeah, you can make that decision. Talk about that. Right? You can just decide to not say something or you can decide to ignore this moment. But I deadass cannot. Mm -hmm. I just always have to take risks that other people aren't going to take. Mm. And that's really scary. Yeah. Are there places in the book that you feel serve as kind of like a like a reprieve or like a place away from that like um, obligation and fight? Not really. Not mm. in this book. Yeah. Well where do you find your reprieve? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Are you looking for it? I'm looking for it. Yeah, that's real. Yeah. And I think also with just like the nature of the job, right? Like you don't get to stop being a poet the same way that like in doing the kind of work that I do, it's a 24-7 job. Like Mm -hmm. if I, somebody's calling me at 3 a.m., you just got to take the call. There is no, Mm -hmm. you know, the day ends at 6 p.m. The day don't end. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to find it in my friends, Mm -hmm. right? In food, Mm -hmm. strangely enough. I try to, like, eat really good cuisine Mm -hmm. and, like, go to good restaurants and, like, read romance novels. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's just, like, amazing. (laughs) I love Yeah, you read romance novels regularly? I'm, like, into romance novels now. Amazing. Specifically, like, Black Hoodlet. Oh, girl. Like, Zane and shit. Like, Zane, Eric Jerome Dickey and shit like that. Yeah. Yes. Oh. It's different. It is different. (laughs) It's a whole different world in there. It is. Some sex scenes are Fire. 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 Like top five. And niggas be creative. Niggas be creative as fuck. I'll never forget when Sapphire <laughs> wrote that goddamn coldest winner coldest ever. Coldest winner ever. And made that Negro put a Jolly Rancher in that girl vagina. In that girl's vagina. Oh, I said, or in fucking I remember pretty girl. hearing about that, but yes. never read it. Well, because it, it was like. it was just like a rumor at school. I mean, yeah, that's how right, I heard yeah. about it too. And I was like, well, I got to read this book. And one, right. the rest of the book was amazing, but I was like, wow. Right. People really out here risking yes. a yeast infection. Yes. With this kid. Yes. Yes. And then in Pretty Girl, where like she's a virgin and they're having sex for the first time and then she bites his hair and he's like bitch fuck is you doing and so like in the middle of them fucking he like has a meltdown because she bit his hair which mm-hmm. is a weird thing to do that's amazing that's an amazing nuance <laughs> now they're gonna come <laughs> he's like bitch what the fuck are you eating my hair for he's like I don't know I'm coming <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> I live for that shit <laughs> so I try to find like my reprieve there and like honestly through sex mm-hmm. for sure that's fine I don't know. We can say that. Feed the body in all the ways. 
I think I got it. Look, if this isn't the podcast, that we can admit that fucking is great. Fucking is great. Fucking is great. People are fucking very emotional great. about it, though. People don't like knowing that you fuck other people. Look, we all got here somehow. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you concerned? Like, you what, what are you freaking out? Like, yes, there, your are, parents there are, are other both dicks. a little bit of a freak. There are dicks, there are vaginas. <laughs> there are other vaginas. Uh-huh. There are other not vaginas and dicks. There are, like, plenty of options, mm-hmm. and I'm going to lean into all of them. I'm sorry mm. that hurts you. Mm. So annoying. <laughs> fuck. Moose, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm policing me. <laughs> I'm fuck as many people as I want. Well, you're reading about this, but you're also writing a little bit of yeah, romance, let's too. Pivot right? there. Let, yeah, let's there. So... I wouldn't call it romance. It's more like breakup poems. Oh, right. Okay, right? Okay. Which is like, I guess, sort of the same thing. Yeah, so for that's like, nomance. Nomance. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Right. But at the same time, I think in writing about heartbreak, you have to lean into romance because mm. you have to really be able to build out the landscape to mm-hmm. impose heartbreak on the page. Like, mm-hmm. you have to introduce what being loved feels like to really mm-hmm. be able to explain what being left feels like. Mm-hmm. And so that's why for Ugh, so long... I just got emotional just with you describing in general terms. Right, I know. <laughs> and that's why for so long I just did not write about either. I just didn't mm-hmm. write about love. It just, like, wasn't a thing yeah. that I could do, mm-hmm. legit. And then I went through a really, really bad breakup mm-hmm. two and a half years ago. Like one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. I was looking so hard for especially a book of prose by a black woman that was about heartbreak Mm. and I couldn't fucking find one Mm. like I can find plenty of poems and books about like the general everyday heartbreak of like being black being a woman being queer but I like could not find a book that said I got my heart broken I want to kill myself that's valid Mm. Mm. not a thing that black women get to talk about getting your heart broken can feel just as bad as any other trauma Mm. that is like natural to being a black woman Mm. um So when I started writing it, it was really me just sort of like going back to like a reclamation, trying to, A, understand what I'd experienced, Mm -hmm. but also like not just explain the heartbreak, but to explain the love that Mm -hmm. I felt Mm -hmm. because I also never felt like I saw that either. Plenty of romance novels, right? But like for the most part, they're set in worlds that like I can never walk into. Mm -hmm. Like I've never grown up on a ranch. Mm -hmm. I'm not about to like bump into the guy who runs the general store down the Mm -hmm. block who happens to be black. Like that's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. What I have is like I was with this nigga. I've never been loved like this in my life. Mm -hmm. And then it imploded because I am like bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. That's what I have. And I can't find that story anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I got to write that shit. Have you noticed anything new about black womanhood in writing about her? I have, yeah. What I've discovered is that we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. which is crazy. We talk around it and we mention it. When you say it, you mean romantic heartbreak. heartbreak. Mm, okay. We will talk about it in maybe in comparing it to what it means to be black on an everyday basis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I can find a poem that is about the black man not loving us. But I can't find the poem. You know, like, Sharon Old is very good at writing about heartbreak, it's right? Because she be naming names. She be naming like, names. Like, Richard left me. Right, right, <laughs> right. You do not find very many of those poems from black women. Mm-hmm. And, like, of course, I'm probably missing something. I'm sure that there's, like, enough, but not as much as I can find for white women. Mm-hmm. What I've discovered is that, one, Black women are not writing about heartbreak Mm -hmm. or even really writing about love in this Mm -hmm. very specific way. Mm -hmm. And 
part of the reason why is because it doesn't feel valid in comparison to all of these other bigger heartbreaks. Mm. Like, we don't feel like it's valid to talk about your man cheating on you when, like, that same man can, like, walk outside and be killed by the police. Mm. Those two things don't seem to be able to live together in the same collection, Mm. right, or in the same poetics. And it's so stifling. And it's so unfair, right? It's like there's a part of our humanity that is being sickled because we are sort of, like, the orators of the bigger, larger world of pains Mm. and injustices. And what it's also taught me Mm. is, like, as I'm talking to women, especially older Black women, about heartbreak, realizing like how little we talk about it and that uh-huh. we don't have language for it hmm. like I'm, black women not even making time like for not even making to time able, yeah. to talk about it mm-hmm. like for the first time maybe a couple months ago my mom really articulated to me how broken she was when we found out that my sister's father was like about to leave her for another woman three months after she had this child, right? Mm. I found out all this other shit that he had like signed up for a credit card in her name and like ran up her credit, which is like why we couldn't get an apartment, which is like why we wound up living in this one bedroom for like 10 years. And just never, I never saw her cry. Hmm. I never like heard her even like on the phone talking to anyone and saying like, I am hurting. There was plenty of anger. Mm. More than enough anger to go around. But I never saw my mom just, like, be sad. And Mm. something opened up so much in that moment where I got to just, like, hug her and be like, I'm so sorry. Mm. Like, you must have been really hurting. And her being like, yeah, but, like, I had you, so I just had to focus. Mm. And it just feels so important to me to open up that space. Mm. That's a place where I think black women have the ability to reclaim humanity where we Mm. haven't been able to yet. There's actually a line in the prose book that I'm working on that says, like, Black girls get to write about heartbreak, too. Part of it, I'm wondering if it's part of the duality of societal concerns, like not allowing Black women to make that space. Mm -hmm. And like I hear you talking about, too. And also... Part of that problem might also be the publishing industry. Yeah, like, who even knows if that book has tried to get totally. out there before? Right, and right. I feel like some sure. editor was like, this is not the accepted narrative that a- I want to hear from black women. Absolutely. Right. I think right. it's definitely, definitely both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the more those narratives get pushed to the side is the more that we just don't think that they are valid or mm-hmm. valuable. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that like, even little shit, like, do you, you know, the New York Times Love Is column, mm-hmm. like, I read it pretty often. Not very many black women are authoring those. Mm-hmm. It's straight up just like middle-aged, middle-class white women mm-hmm. talking about their husbands leaving them, talking about, you know, being in, like, polyamorous relationships and it not working out. But no black women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems like such an important, like, space of care-making mm-hmm. to, like, mm-hmm. write yeah. about that. To make a space where, like— Black women can be allowed to make a space for like a smaller pain. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like a low, like human small yes, pain. Like a very basic human pain yeah. that literally everyone feels mm-hmm. that black women seem yeah. to have been left out a of. Personal right. pain. A like personal a, pain. A this personal is not the pain, pain of my community. This is not the pain no. of my community. This is not the pain of my collective. This is very much like an individual pain that happened from an individual violation right. that only I can articulate. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the prose collection that I'm working on, there's a line where someone says, you know, you need to stop trying to kill yourself over this. It's just a breakup. And Mm. that was the reason why I wrote the book Mm. is because I was like, how fucking dare you sort of indicate to me that this pain is irrelevant in comparison to other things, that it like doesn't Mm. have the ability to kill me the same way that Mm. other things are, right? Mm. It's like the fact that 
I'm even sitting here crying is like blasphemous to you, mm. right? That somehow I'm supposed to just get over this so that I can like go do the other things. Right, mm. like, as if it's like more it's noble just, to cry right, over the news. to cry over the news, yeah. right? Than yeah. to like cry over your nigga leaving you, right? Yeah. It's like, I was so mad when mm. I heard that from that person mm-hmm. that I was like, I full on fucking reject this. I reject it all the fucking way. I'm gonna cry as long as I need to fucking cry. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna take off fucking days from work. I'm gonna check myself into this hospital after I've tried to kill myself. And you're not gonna make me feel fucking shameful for something like breaking me this way it's Mm -hmm. a real thing Mm -hmm. and mostly I want like other black girls when they read it if it ever comes out into the world to be able to relate to it and Mm -hmm. like when they're going through that moment like find the book that I was looking for the thing I got closest Mm -hmm. to was A Bestiary by Lily Huang um, which Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really that shit but I wanted a a bestiary written by a black girl Mm. Mm. can you talk about what that poem taught you or what yeah what this book allowed for me is um of really like working through how your heart gets broken like all the Mm. many ways your heart gets broken in a relationship right so it's like not just at the end when you're breaking up or your partner is leaving or you're moving to different places but it's like these small moments Mm. within your relationship Mm -hmm. that you just don't pay attention to Mm -hmm. that are like either red flags or like indicators of real fissures that turn into like this larger split. Mm. So part of what my next collection or the collection I'm working on now is called Dyscalculia. Dyscalculia is like the math version of dyslexia. Mm. It's something that I got diagnosed with when I was a kid. So it's like the the inability to be able to do arithmetic efficiently. And the way that that manifests, I think, in relationships and part of what BCA told me is that there are these moments or fissures that happen and your brain computes them as one way because it's like the way that you need to understand it in order to like get to the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, And often you're like missing something that you should have seen that was like Mm -hmm. right in front of you that could have told you a bigger story or Mm -hmm. given you a clue as to like how to save yourself or the Mm -hmm. other person. Mm -hmm. And you just don't pay attention to it because you much rather like live in the ignorance of the miscalculation. Um, And so that is what the collection is about. But I wouldn't have been able to get to that without a bestiary. Mm -hmm. So really just like walking through not just like how my breakup happened, but the things that my ex and like some of my exes had said to me that sort of like scaffolded so even mm. my first like serious relationship was with this white guy Joe I don't know if you remember Joe I remember Joe you remember Joe <laughs> and I remember he said to me like you're emasculating or like you emasculate me in the book I say like I didn't really know what he meant and then later on in the book there's a moment where I talk about my, how my ex once said to me like he started making all these new friends and I was like how come I haven't met your friends like I usually meet all your friends we're super close and he was like, I don't like introducing you to my friends because they always wind up liking you more than me. And then I knew what Joe meant by, like, being emasculating. Taking all of these, like, small moments that are both, like, obviously bigger than romance, right? That obviously mm-hmm. have everything to do about, like, being a woman, being a black woman, being black and queer. All of those things. But then also allowing you to see these tiny, tiny moments that have these larger implications mm-hmm. that we often ignore. Because I think that is currently, like, the popular culture of, like, pop poetry. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Yes. Even, yeah. like. That's Ruby Cower in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, especially like, I've seen a lot of people. I don't want to read that shit. No, I don't no. either. No offense to like the Ruby Cores of the world and like some of our peers. And I don't really. 
really give a fuck. It's almost like the reason why you write about this is because you don't have anything else to write about, Mm -hmm. not because you have made like a critical, functional decision to say, I am leaning into this part of the narrative Mm -hmm. because it's necessary. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is what you have. Mm -hmm. And like, this is the way that you were introduced to poetics, right? Through the idea of romance. That's not how I came to this shit, Mm -hmm. right? And like, what I want is... I want to see that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I want to see, like, the decision to write about this thing mm-hmm. over something else. And yeah. I feel like I never get that. As an adolescent, did you write, like, love and heartbreak poems? Never. Really? Never. Wow. Was just not a part of my thing. I think that's such a common entry point for yeah. so many young writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that they write, they like, write about love. Yeah, love. Never. I, straight huh. right into rape. Hmm. That was the first. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the poem that got me on, you know, on my Brave New Voices team was a poem about being black and Jewish and like the shared trauma of that. Hmm. I, I think had- that's a really interesting thing about youth poets coming into mm-hmm. it because I think we often do bypass sort of like those more innocent topics. Yeah. Because I'm like thinking about my first poems. It was like absent father, yep. like fucked up family, yep. and America is shitty. Yep. And, you know, please stop doing yep. things to black people. Like yep. those are like my first and like and also like I'm gay. Those are like my first sort of entries. And I feel similarly. And I'm wondering if that is a function of poetry slam to like right. ask kids to like sort of bypass like totally the, the feelings. The that... heartbreak poem isn't gonna win a slam. No, the heartbreak poem doesn't win a slam. No. No. Just like, that's so sad. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. And also I think like the heartbreak poem, especially when you're that young, to other people, it's like, oh, it's just young love. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. it's not until you become like a grown-ass woman with like grown-ass responsibilities mm-hmm. that you realize like just how profound mm-hmm. <laughs> the yeah. love poem is. Right, I mean, right, that's right. what I want. Totally. I mean, honestly, that's when I want the heartbreak poem. Right. You know, like yeah. no disrespect to all the 17-year-old heartbreak poems out there, mm-hmm. but I want the 37 heartbreak, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. or, or, the, or the like the 26, you yeah. know, that's what I want. Yeah. Um, actually, that's why, bringing back Sharon Olds, that's why Stag Leap oh goes so God. hard, it's right? So hard. And like hard. she's been, you know, writing confession for a very long time, yes. but like when you get to Stag's Leap, which is just this older woman writing about heartbreak it's just yeah. like this shit Oof. is phenomenal Fuck, <laughs> fucking amazing yeah. Yeah. again another narrative that we don't really get right is like older women talking about heartbreak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so this is a poetry collection that yeah it's a prose poetry prose book, yeah hybrid yeah. hybrid oh, cool. <laughs> it's a little hybrid what is that form opening up for you in, in just like a this? totally different way of thinking about the line actually mm-hmm. and like dialogue mm-hmm. where dialogue often like doesn't really make it into my regular everyday poems mm-hmm. but in this collection how critical dialogue and the structure of dialogue is mm-hmm. even without using quotation marks or indicating that it that this is dialogue just mm-hmm. allowing dialogue to like walk you through the narrative mm-hmm. in a way that like you just don't do with poems like yeah. you just mm-hmm. don't lead with dialogue and poetry yeah mm-hmm. that's true whenever I write prose poems I feel like my language gets a lot wilder yeah. because I don't realize how much pressure the line is exactly. putting, on, putting me on until you. I remove it. Yeah. And then exactly. I'm like, oh shit. Oh, okay. I can literally say whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> totally. That's right. definitely what it's done for me. And especially in talking about like love and romance, allowing that space, like so much room mm-hmm. to just like say anything mm-hmm. and like all of this juxtaposition that like you just would not find in like a regular stanza poem. Yeah. It's, been amazing. I mm-hmm. fucking love this damn book. <laughs> I'm like really excited for Build Yourself a Boat to just mm-hmm. like be out in the world and do whatever it's going to do so that mm-hmm. I can go back to focusing on dyscalculia. Yeah. 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 Right now, as I'm also in the process of like ushering a book into this world, yeah. it's been really, really good to like 
be writing things that have nothing, nothing to do with it. it. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, amazing. it's so Nothing good. to do with it. Yeah. I don't even have to think about it. Right. It makes me so happy. Right. That's so much of like where we get our power from, right? Yeah. It's like writing a thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Know? And it's like, look, I've been working on this for five years. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So like most of these poems don't even really represent like how I'm writing. Yeah. And so it kind of feels delayed. And I'm just like, yeah. okay, great. Y'all take it. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah. And now let's mm-hmm. move into the thing that is yeah. actually compelling me. Yeah. Who do you hope this book reaches? Yeah. And what do you hope it does? Or how do you hope it lives in the world? My hope is that there is a black girl, a bunch of black girls who walk into Barnes & Noble or any of these other small bookstores and they don't know what they're looking for, but they see this cover and they feel like they are on the cover Mm. and they open it and they feel like it's talking to them and they Mm. buy it and they read it and it sleeps under their pillow. That is what I hope for. Amen. On every episode, we play a little game called This Versus That, where we put two people or concepts or books or whatever in an all-out brawl mm-hmm. and ask our guests who would win in said fight. So for this episode, we're going to do kind of like a multi-round situation. Cool. Like mm-hmm. a little, we're going to, you know, break it up a little fight bit. Fight night, a whole bunch of mini cards, <laughs> right? Know? Category is... Poets versus politicians. All right, and so let's, we're gonna we're gonna give you a few of those. Mm-hmm. The first one is in this corner we have Tracy K. Smith, right. poet laureate of the United States, mm-hmm. and in that corner we have Donald Trump, white people's president, the president of whites, and only particular whites. I ain't gonna, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's the president. All whites deserve. Okay, okay. <laughs> you're welcome. Y'all all keep him. Cool. <laughs> who wins in a fight? Yeah, who wins in a fight? Tracy K. Smith wins in a fight because she's got the squad behind her. She's got the people. Mm-hmm. Don't nobody fuck with Donald Trump. Niggas is running from Donald Trump. Niggas is like, I have never spoken to him. Like, niggas who worked for him for a decade. I was never there. It's like, but we saw an order from Seamless that you placed nah. into this room. Donald this, Trump. I wasn't there. Everybody's going to jail. Everybody's I feel like jail. I feel like we're two days away from Ivanka being like, I was raised by a single mother. Exactly. Like, I actually just met my father at the beginning of this presidency. Everything you've seen before was a he lie. He reached back out during the campaign. Right. I've never spoken to him, though, outside of this. I've never, never. I got married and I said, fuck that nigga. <laughs> so for that simple reason, Tracy K. Smith would win. Cool. Now we're going to go Round a little two. old school. All right. Okay. Uh, Bill Clinton in one corner versus Maya Angelou. You know what? Clinton would win because it's Maya Angelou's <laughs> fault for saying that Clinton was the first black president. It, it, was she not the one who said that? She sure did. She was one of the many Negroes. One of the many <laughs> Negroes, but she coined it in a negative way, sort of. She meant it in like a... Like he plays the sax and Like he plays the... Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, the, and like we could see him eating watermelon. I could. I could too, but that's her fault. She she created the she the, the, the contrast. So you gotta live with that shit. Maya Angelou mm. defeated so, by So Bill Clinton, Clinton would win. Last one. Elizabeth Alexander. Versus Elizabeth Warren. Well, Battle of Elizabeth. Elizabeth Alexander, because guess which one of them understands rates? Man, that's very true, man. I love Elizabeth Alexander, and Elizabeth Warren made it real hard for me to keep liking her in, like, the last, like, two years. You just have no idea what race is. (laughs) Like, between her and Bernie, it's just like, are you guys paying attention at all? Yeah. No, I liked her so much. All of last year, I was just like, shh. Like, I don't just like stop, stop, stop yeah, it, just like it. kept fucking up. Yeah. And specifically as it relates to race, mm-hmm. which is 
incredible to me. Yeah. I don't understand that's how That's what happens when you do that little 23 and me shit. Yeah, that's what happens. Out. That's what happens. Between her and Bernie, I'm just like, okay, so like there are no black people on the far left. No, no, None. No. Because the ones who like are the far left leaders don't even know that we exist. So that's cool. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. <sighs> so it would have to be Elizabeth Alexander. Okay, cool. Elizabeth Dang. Alexander. Mm-hmm. Lead, us, right. lead us the way. Yeah. So two poets, one president. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Poets two, president one. That's, that's fair. That's pretty good. That's I'll take fair. it. I mean, yeah. I'll sure. take it. All I want is if I can start getting money for lobbyists to like write about certain topics, then I'll right. the bank. Right. NRA, if you're listening, I hate y'all. No. I have a price. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> what? I have a price. I have a price. Wow. <laughs> it is high. <laughs> well, guess what? The, the NRA, them niggas ain't got no money. <laughs> they just took out the coffee machine from their office because they're losing so much money because they spent the most money that they've ever spent on the last election. And the, the reality is not that people are no longer donating to the NRA. It's that the Democrats and the independents are now outspending them mm. on oh. anti-gun legislation mm. and anti-gun activation. Oh. And the NRA, they ain't got no Coins. Wow. For the first time. Oh, that's exciting. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, that's beautiful. It's like the NRA so you're is telling me I missed my window to sell out. Sell out to other people. Huh? These niggas even got coffee. Okay, big tobacco if you're out there. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I got some I got some poems for y'all, you know? Yo, big pharma, hit yeah. me up. Let's make hey, cigarettes mama, cool again. <laughs> Let's make cigarettes cool again. <laughs> I would love to no. have a cigarette right now. <laughs> Which is a problem. This is just free advertising. Yeah, this is just, this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't smoke Don't don't smoke kids. No. It's not good for your lungs or your poems. No. (laughs) That's a lie. It's great for your image. It's great Uh, for your image. uh, (laughs) This is horrible. Yeah, it's really Uh, bad. We're getting canceled by one million moms. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Cool. Well, I think nothing better than do or at the end of this since uh, hear a poem. Yes. One more poem, please. Okay. So this poem is called Yes, It Is Possible. Mm. I love this poem. For most of my life, I remained unaware of this, the way a wingless arm is unaware of the conceit of flight. But now I know that, yes, it is possible to be allergic to a person. It is possible for the body to be wholly autonomous in how it chooses to preserve itself. No matter what fleshy, amorphous image of the heart the synapse might conjure, a great fire muted by holy water, a blue room with one pink knob, no matter what you think you want, it is the body that decides Mm. and will reject whatever antibodies revile its stasis. And in this case, the foreign cell was the Pisces fish, a twin fish, a two-fish flush, unvirtuous and writhing in deceit and steeped in the drama of belonging to too many lies. And yes, I had prayed that he'd finally come back to me and that when he'd knock, he'd appear with one less life. But then he did appear, a xenophile on a tour of homes. And that would be our last encounter. All I could do was heave at the sight of him head oscillating dizzily between two different men, two different lives, so Piscean in his world of Elysian highs. But this time, my system's nose down, anatomy buckling out into autopilot, bringing me down to my knees to purge. And it was like this for days. I couldn't stomach a morsel, my receptors stunted with the shock of an imminent shift. I wept and cocooned myself into a sweat until at once it stopped. And I woke to find myself at the kitchen table, perfectly unbothered, fingering cubes of fresh wet aloe into my mouth, as if life itself were some benign victory I'd won.
can't wait to vote for that motherfucker. Come on. <laughs> yes. Put her on the ticket. <laughs> yes. President of like America, mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. looks. <laughs> President of Luke. Franny. Yes. If you were ever going to run for something. Oh, my God. God. Except for into my arms. I don't want to uh, run anywhere. No. <laughs> if you were going to power walk um, for a political office. Power walk for a political office. I love it. What's your campaign slogan? Vote for Franny Choi. A nerd for the people. Ooh, I like that. You know? Uh-huh. I'm going to be a dork about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But like, I love it. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Mm-hmm. You and me. Mm-hmm. What about you? Mine is Denez 2020. Uh-huh. Oh, you're running in 2020? Mm-hmm. For what? Miss America. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so Denez 2020, vote for the bottom, put America on top. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I hate how much I love that. <laughs> yes, right? It's very good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And America does continue to top us all. Yes, it she? does. Yes, it does. No loop. No, no loop. God damn Just it. A little bit of loop. I wish you would use a smaller strap. Just a... oh, yeah. Jesus. Uh, okay. Anyway. anyway, before we get, um, I don't know, canceled. Decimated. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who we got to thank this time around? I would like to thank Lube for. <laughs> <laughs> continuing to make the plastic phalluses go where they belong. Amen. Amen. What about you? I'm going to thank coconut oil for doing <laughs> what lube always does, but in a natural way. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. That yeah. natural life. That natural way. It's a little chunky at first, but the more you do it, it just oh, gets real gosh, slick. I wish you hadn't said chunky. I know. I know. <laughs> it's a bad adjective it sometimes. It is. It is. It is. It is. Especially when thinking about... All right. Uh... <laughs> anyway, thank you to the Poetry Foundation. <laughs> Thank you, Idami Noriega. Oh, my God. Idami, thank you. Thank you, Post Loudness. Thank you to our producer, Daniel Kisslinger, who stayed with us through thick and thin. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook at VS The Podcast. Comment wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, feel free to share with a friend, you know? Um, We're in our third season now. I'm ready for my fame. Yeah. You know? (laughs) I'm ready to be one of the top podcasts and bitches in America. So, I'm waiting on y'all to make it happen, America. (laughs) Listener, you hear me? Share it with your friend. She can't write poems that good. Let her know. We love you. (laughs) Bye. That too. Bye.